Welcome to the Earth Keepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. In this episode, we'll be talking to Randy Woodley about his new book, Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. Randy and his wife Edith lead Eloe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice, and their work touches the lives of Native people and non-Native people alike. According to Randy, everyone has Indigenous connections to some place in the world. One of the core purposes of his new book is to help people to discover their own Indigenous roots, even as they seek to learn from the Native people wherever they now live. I say a number of times in the book, we're all Indigenous from somewhere. The values that have been developed, the, the relationship with the earth, those were all given to indigenous peoples all over the whole earth. I call them the original instructions. And those are what's needed to sustain us and to treat each other well also. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Welcome back, Randy, to the podcast. This is the second time you've been on, but for those who have not heard that first podcast with you, wondering if you could... Tell us a bit about what you and your wife, Edith, are up to these days. Yeah, probably first of all, I should say that uh, everything we do, we do together, except for my role at Portland Seminary as a professor of faith and culture. But over the last 32 years, we've been active serving our Native communities and in the sort of latter part of this really serving non-Native people as well, because we realized some time ago that if we don't all heal together, the problems won't be solved. And so mm-hmm. a lot of times we we direct our attention to both Native and non-Native. You know, we've done so many things over the years in terms of what people would call service, teen mothers, after-school programs for disadvantaged kids, houseless programs and facilities and drug rehab and just a lot of different things we've done over the years. But we're pretty much, I think our general way that we could categorize what we do is we are catalysts, maybe catalyst mentors now that we're getting a little older, catalysts in transforming people's personal growth in their lives and also social systems. And so we're, we're very interested in structural change as well. Part of the reason that we have Elahe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Elahe Farm and Seeds is because we want a, a place and a model to demonstrate some solutions. We're not just trying to put a finger in the big dike of you know the world's problems, but we're also trying to create a model that will help people to be able to take some of the things that they discover and put them in their own situations. And I used to think, you know, the world was a, the more people you could reach with your message and all that, the, but that's not really how things work. I think just creating good models is a, is a way to affect change in the world. And so that's what we've been up to for a number of years here with uh, Elahe. Looking at your, your ministries and the various things that you're doing, I might add that that relationship is another important 
key dynamic in the work that you do. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. We are. We used to have as a sort of a mantra a while back, short-term mentoring, lifelong relationships. And I think that's important for us. We don't think about it in terms of like, oh, are we going to form a relationship? We just think about like being with people and liking to be with them and and hoping that we can continue that down the road. So under the category of relationships, we have we've built over the years by hosting people so many relationships around the world and and we've been so enriched by them that they mean so much to our lives. Yeah. So thanks for mentioning that. I appreciate it. Well, I would even say that there's something about your books that's relational. I'm not sure quite how to explain that, but you write in such a way that is really invitational, really welcoming. And so I think people feel like they know you when they read your work. Thanks. I've had people say your voice comes out in your books. And so, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, that's what I want. I, I, I mean, we try to just have integrity with everything we do. We're people who speak from the heart. And I hope that comes across in my and the things that I write as well. So thanks. Yeah. Well, I think one of your strengths is, uh, is storytelling. And you're quite vulnerable, actually, to tell stories out of your own life and your family's life. And I can remember reading along in some of your books, and I, I come across a difficult passage, and I, I think, what does that really mean, right? And sure enough, the next thing you do is tell a story that talks about what that really means and kind of shows us the actions behind the ideas. Yeah. I don't know that my family's happy that I do that often. Because <laughs> a lot of times the stories are about them. but. I hope people get to know us and who we are because that's the richness of life is getting to know each other. And part of this whole thing is about like, what does it mean to love? Right? So this is a, it's a journey to understand how to love others and how to love yourself and your family and everyone else. But I've, I've come to discover that the opposite of love is not hate. I don't think it is. I think I think hate is something that demands a lot from you, a lot of energy, a lot of maintenance and everything else. And and to spend that much time with something, you have to have some good feelings about it, right? But I think the opposite of love is to be superficial. It's to be not vulnerable. It's to be uncaring about what happens to the people around me to disenfranchise people, to marginalize people, all of those things, that, that is the opposite of love. And so this whole idea of love your neighbor as you love yourself, I mean, it's pretty simple, really. It's not difficult. I, I want to be fed, so I should make sure my neighbors are fed. I want to be cared for. I should make sure they have love in their lives. I want to have be housed. I want to take a shower every now and then. I want to, you know, and so... If we want that for ourselves, we should want that for everyone else. Yeah, I really love that that idea that the opposite of, of love is not hate. I think people, we all let ourselves off the hook in a way by saying, oh, we must be good people because, you know, we don't hate that person because they're different or hate that person because they're of a, you know, different socioeconomic status. But, you know, indifference is almost a form of violence in itself. When you're indifferent to people, when you're dismissive, there's something really dehumanizing about that. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that was the word I was really looking for. Thank you. Indifference. Yeah. So you have a new book coming out, Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. Tell me why this book at this time? Well, the world's in a mess. 
our country's in a mess. Climate change is bearing down on us every day. And we've not treated the world the way it deserves to be treated. We've not treated the earth and the whole community of creation, all of God's creatures, the way they need to be treated. And so there's a, a reason why. And I started asking why a long time ago, and I've sort of boiled it down to the Western worldview, which is a, a really a worldview with all kinds of deficits. And it comes from Platonic dualism like 3,000 years ago, and a lot of things kind of have been baked in the bread along the way, so we call that being ubiquitous. It's our, our social systems, our economic systems, our political systems, our educational systems all come out of this sort of dualistic thinking, which says that the ethereal or those things of the mind, the spirit, the you know things that you can't touch are more important than the material, the things that you can touch, the tangible things. And so we have seen that in theology, particularly. We see it in our politics, and we see it in our social movements. We see it in, our, in the culture wars. If you think the right things, is what we think. If you think the right things, then you're basically a good person and you're doing your job. And that's the problem with this dualistic thinking, is that it's all about doing the right thing, right? It's not about whether I can think correctly, but how do we do it? And so I write a lot theologically, philosophically. I write a lot about critiquing social systems and all those kinds of things. But I wanted a way to not sort of just face it head on, right? But I wanted to also share this side of me, which says, you know, this is what enriches my life. And I wonder if people, if they could go 100 days reading just a bite-sized reflection and having one action point afterwards for 100 days, would they change from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview? And what better way to do that than to connect them with the earth? You know, Native Americans don't have a patent on our relationship with the earth. Everybody's meant to have that. So that's the point of the book is to say, walk along with me for 100 days. And let's see if we can't begin to change ourselves and the structures around us that are not going to sustain us for the future. Yeah, I, I really think the strength of this book in particular is that you're, you're not coming at this sort of change in worldview from a heady sort of ideological stance. You're, you're really inviting people to experience, to sort of taste and see and see what happens, right? And yeah. it's very disarming in a way, in a great way. Your style overcomes our internal resistance to change in a way that's very invitational and very full of grace, I think. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. I don't think I was always that way, but people have been telling me as I get older, I've, they feel a lot of love, even though I might say some hard <laughs> things sometimes. So <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment <laughs> in growth. So this is a collection of daily reflections, as you've said, and that makes it quite a bit different from books that you have written in the past and, and books that are soon to come out. Could you talk about your intentions in doing this particular format and maybe talk about how you hope people will engage this book? So I know everybody's busy, right? I don't think people got less busy in during our COVID quarantines. They just found other ways to fill their time. And so we're not in a culture that likes to spend a whole lot of time reading or 
thinking about spiritual things, you know, we, we sort of like think, okay, I'll go to my church or synagogue or whatever and sort of fill that niche. And then, you know, I go out and I do something different. This is not meant to be that. This is meant to just like maybe even a start of your day where you sit down and again, these are bite-sized reflections. They they don't take even five minutes, not even five minutes to read, maybe longer to think about. And I'm hoping people think about it during the day. And then there's one very simple action point at the end that says, hey, here's a way that you can just sort of go out in a very simple way that might change your life and and do something very, you know, that's not going to take very long and get you in touch with the community of creation, the earth. And yeah, so I'm kind of hoping that's how it's used. If people would do that with me, maybe for 100 days, and, and we are going to have a Facebook site that anyone can join. And we're going to start reading. The book comes out January 4th, but it can be pre-ordered now. Hopefully people will start pre-ordering because those pre-orders get shipped on January 4th. And on January 12th, we will start to go through the book together. The first, and there'll be a Facebook live on that Facebook page. We will do the introduction first and then go a hundred days. And then we'll earn on end on Earth Day, which is sort of the, the way we wanted to culminate this, right? And then on Earth Day, we want to have a gathering out here at Elahe if conditions permit. Yeah, it, it just kind of all worked together like that and if people would join us, they but they don't have to do it then. And they don't have to do 100 days. They can read every now and then, skip around like we've done some of our reflection materials from other people. But I think they'll be enriched in whatever way they join in. Yeah, I have to say that as I was reading the advanced copy, I kept thinking to myself, I would love to do this in the context of community. Because I'd love to hear what other people are thinking and experiencing when they read this, when they're they're trying the action points And it's actually something I might do, actually, to try to find some people who want to read with me, sort of in sync, and then engage in some discussion. So if they're, like you mentioned that, which reminded me, one of the other plans we have for this is to ask if there are small groups that want to do this together, I'm going to provide free small group training, like an hour and a half, 90-minute Zoom for different groups to so that the leaders can be confident about where to go with this. And so that's that's going to be available. All that's happening. Uh, and if folks want to know about that, the best thing is to stay tuned and like the Randy Woodley author speaker page, which is where the Facebook page is going to be run from, or to get on our newsletter list, which you can go to org and sign up for the newsletter. Well, we'll for sure link to to those particular sites. But I want to return to this this idea of relationship that pervades the book. And ask if you could maybe read from page four about the kind of, of relationship that you're advocating for, hoping for, in terms of people's response. Yeah, love to. Page four is part of the introduction. This journey is your personal invitation into a different kind of relationship with nature, or as I like to say, with the whole community of creation. It is also an invitation into a different kind of relationship with Creator, however you understand Creator to be present in your own life and within everything, as God, as great mystery, as higher power, or as the universe. I suspect that when people 
read that for themselves. There are probably a lot of people even listening now who feel some sense of longing, some sense of longing when you talk about that sort of relationship, even if they don't entirely understand the kind of relationship that you're advocating for. I wonder, though, if you could help people to understand what relationship to the community of creation might look like by giving us a story from, from your own life about what that looks like. And that's, um, by the way, there's a whole lot of stories from my own life in the book. You know, if I'm not experiencing this myself, I didn't feel I had integrity or the place to, to share with other people. Mm-hmm. There's a couple that are especially meaningful to me. Personal times when, when I felt so close to the creator and creation. And I'm going to go ahead and, and read this if I can. And it actually begins with a quote by William Shakespeare. And this, our life exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. I thought that was pretty insightful. Chapter three is called Sacred Sleep, Sacred Water. And I think the reason I like this so much is because I long for that time again in my life. I don't have a a running creek on my property, and I love streams and creeks and brooks or however you want to classify them. But it says this, when I was a teenager growing up in the land of the Anishinaabek, I had a secret spot. I would go there when I was hunting or just when I needed solace. About nine in the morning when the warmth of the sun was winning the battle over the cold air left from the night before, I would make my way down to the creek where it exited the woods and joined a small field. The open space between the two sections of woods was just wide enough to allow the heat from the sun to become a true force before the trees shadowed it out. There I would lie, allowing the earth to hold me in her warm embrace. I would close my eyes and listen to the gurgle of the creek. Those sacred moments often turned into calm sleep. Sleep that was peaceful, but not quiet. Sleeping in the bosom of nature is not the same as sleeping in the safety of one's home. Not at all. As you lay your body down to become one with the earth, reality shifts. In that state, you can sense that God, Creator, is listening to the intentions of your heart. Whatever the mysterious power is behind creation It softens one's mind. Great mystery unscrews the tight lids of the jars of certainty that you hold too tightly, too fiercely. You realize, sometimes even trembling, that something greater than yourself is meeting you. There, in the restful unknown world between sleep and wakefulness, you give yourself to those elements, to spirit, in the kind of vulnerability a newborn in the world must experience. I dozed off into the realm of sacred beauty rest next to that stream. I listened at how the water responded to each rock, to every branch protruding from the creek bank, and to the swirl of every curve as it meandered past me and into some other creature's nap. With each contact, the water had a particular note and registry of sound. Over the rocks, around the curve, down the path of its sacred water journey, sacred sleep, sacred water, sacred life. 
We've been in conversation with Randy Woodley about his new book, Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. If you've been intrigued by some of the things that we've talked about so far, you might consider taking a closer look at the book on his website at randywoodley.com and click on New Books. There you'll find an option to order the book in such a way that a percentage of the purchase goes to support Elohe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice. You can pre-order your copy now so that you will receive it right away when it's released on January 4th. If you're interested in reading the book in a group guided by Randy, find out how to join it on his Facebook page called Randy Woodley Author. And of course, we'll put these links in the podcast show notes. Personally, I'll be reading the book for a second time starting in January. I figure what better way to start the new year than to seek a more earth-honoring perspective and a deeper sense of connection to the Creator. For now, let's get back to our conversation with Randy Whitley. I find that much of what you write in this book is is almost permission-giving. Because you tell your stories in particular, you show what it could look like for someone to try this new mode of being, this new mode of relationship. I found that in my case, a lot of times when I heard your story, it pushed me to recall moments that from my own life that I had experienced that had a a similarity or a resonance with the story you were telling. And in that sense, you were reconnecting me to experiences that I've already had. And so it wasn't just outside ideas coming in, but you were calling up my own encounters with nature. That's wonderful to hear because that's really the idea. It's that we all have this relationship, right, with the community of creation. Maybe one time we saw the Grand Canyon or or went to the ocean or we saw an eagle fly above us or a hummingbird on a flower or a particular just a flower, and we felt that special connection. And so I'm hoping that I can reawaken that in people's lives and do exactly what you just said and, and to think about, oh, I do have a relationship with nature. I've just been ignoring it. And I think that that's where the permission giving comes in. You legitimize those experiences when, in fact, many people have been taught to delegitimize it, right? And so to call it a relationship, to to value that relationship as a significant part of of spiritual practice even, I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping so because we are not going to be able to sustain the earth well, ourselves on the earth, I think they're just going to be okay in the long run, but I'm not sure humanity will. And so we need to find a different way of relating. And I I think um, perhaps from our indigenous perspective, this is, this is one of those ways that might help us sustain our privilege to be caretakers of the earth. So I want to talk about a particular term that you use, indigeneity. There's a lot going on in the book around that idea, that term. What does it mean to become more indigenous to the places we live in? So I think it, it takes several things. One is to understand who lived there before you and perhaps where are they now and what's going on and to begin to build and understand their mythologies and their stories and their causes that they're involved in now and their events and those kinds of things. So there's, there's one sense that that just means to be a good guest on someone else's land, right? So that's one thing. But then in terms of, you know, I say a number of times in the book, we're all indigenous from somewhere. 
the values that have been developed, the, the relationship with the earth, those were all given to indigenous peoples all over the whole earth. I call them the original instructions. And those are what's needed to sustain us and to treat each other well also, those values. And so I think all people were given those values, those original instructions. And so in some sense, getting in touch with our own epigenetics, some people call it the ancestors calling us back. The ancestors are speaking to us and saying, there's so much you've lost. And they look forward to those ancestors the day that we stand here. 14, 15, 20, 25 generations ago, they wanted something of themselves to remain intact. And of the of the good things, those are the things that we need to sort through and say, what are those good things? What are the myths? What are the ceremonies? What are the spiritualities? What are the ways that they looked at life that that can help me be in touch with the earth and and be a better caretaker and tend earth tender? And so we have our own sort of indigeneities, all of us. We call that a small I and a lowercase I and the indigenous people who are in this particular land where we are at with a capital I. Like I said, we don't, you know, Native American people don't have the market on relationship with the earth. In fact, a lot of our stories and prophecies and things like that tell of a time when the earth would start to, this would start to happen and that it would be the teachings of the indigenous people who came back and began to heal and save us, if you will. And so I think we are beginning to see that day. We would certainly see ourselves as a very small part of that, but hopefully we are a part of that. I really want to give emphasis to that idea. It's a very powerful one. And and I think what I hear you saying is that we we have lost touch perhaps with our own indigeneities, wherever we come from in the world, but we've lost touch with that. And what we need, though, is people who still have those traditions, that worldview intact, to show us what it looks like, to model for us indigenous values, which ideally will push us back onto our own values from our own roots. But even if not, there is something really powerful, I think, in, in your invitation to people to say, it's valid for you to look at these ways of being from the indigenous people in the places where you live it's valid to look at those traditions and and borrow from them in the sense that that you can learn to think differently, learn to be differently in terms of your relationship with the land without, I think, uh, appropriating. Yeah, exactly. That's why I wanted to make the distinction. It's it's in a sense what we are what we are borrowing, if you will, or what we are actually learning from and assimilating in our own lives are the values. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the tangible objects or the ceremonies or things like that. Those you need to be given or earned or invited into. And there's lots of that that happens also. But we don't, yeah, appropriate or misappropriate uh, other people's cultures. But the values that sustain them are universal. And that relationship with the earth is universal. And whoever you are on earth, your own people had those values at one time. And I think it's up to us to sort of regain them. And then don't leave out the actual experience that we might begin to pick up those values again, just from spending time with the earth and the community of creation. Yeah, I think we still, we've lost a lot. Yeah, we've lost a lot of stories. We've lost a lot of ceremonies. We've lost a lot of knowledge. But 
the earth is still here and the earth is still teaching us. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look at my, my genetic history, you would see a big circle around places that were Celtic. So Wales and Scotland and Ireland, that's where, where my roots are primarily. And it's interesting to hear you speak about indigeneity in this way, because when I go there and I go to teach there at least once a year in the UK, when I'm there, I feel at home in a strange way, right? There's a connection to that place that is very powerful and it draws me to be there as much as possible. This summer, I'm after my teaching there, I'm going to be able to spend more time exploring and, and actually going to these various places where I know my, my family history is rooted. What would you advise someone like me to do, though, in terms of rediscovering indigeneity? And of course, we don't have to travel to do this, but I have this opportunity to follow that, that impulse in me that's already there. But what are the questions I ask and, and who do I ask? Yeah. And, and that's what I referred to as your ancestors calling you. Some people have that and some people don't. And I think the every culture is different. So I think you have to sort of find cultural guides in those places to help or cultural guides who also relate to those places who can help. And I, I think, you know, Celtic spirituality is one of those more holistic spiritualities that wasn't as affected by the Western worldview. There's a quote I always liked, and I can't remember it now, but it's like you can tell a person's religion by how they treat their cow. So that's their connection to the creation, right? The community of creation. So yeah, find your cultural guides. Sometimes they're books and sometimes they're websites and sometimes they're people. And hopefully there'll always be people involved and, and ask those questions because there's, I don't know that there's a formula except for, I would also like to speak to the fact that I think over the years, the West and especially the, the Western church has squashed a lot of cultures and called them pagan. Sometimes they may have been, sometimes they weren't, and they were being classified that way. And I know that's true because that's how they categorized our Native American cultures, as evil, as Satan worshipers, as pagans, et cetera, et cetera. And that was just not true in, you know, 99.9% .9 of the cases. So, so I imagine that same thing, that same strategy was used over the years, especially at times when people, the church had more force over people and could enforce their beliefs. And so I wouldn't just carte blanche throw everything out. I would say, you know, maybe there's some good stuff here for me to come back to or to understand or somehow. And then whatever the model is that you see in the other culture that uh, perhaps you belong to, then how can that be transferred in the land that you now live and also honor the host people who are there? You know, we're, we're getting into an area that we haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about. And all this is happening at the same time when world travel is so easy, when epigenetics, when ancestry is so available to everybody. And so, you know, there's a lot to discover. There's no sort of formula for it, but there's a whole lot for us to discover about who we are spiritually and how we relate to the earth spiritually and what's comfortable for us, right? Yeah. Well, again, I think one of the most powerful elements of this book is the invitation to learn from indigenous traditions where you are, the capital I indigenous traditions. And mm -hmm. this book has plenty of opportunities for that, to help us learn from, from things that you talk about in terms of just experiences and, and rituals and ways of thinking about, about the earth. 
I wonder if you could read for us from the book, just one of those many opportunities that we have to learn from indigenous traditions. Yeah. So chapter eight starts off with a quote by Carl Starkloff, who was an anthropologist. He says, on the reading of the various accounts by explorers and anthropologists, what strikes one is the almost universal hospitality shown by Indian tribes, especially to their white visitors. There are practically no examples of inhospitality or harsh treatment rendered to whites. On the contrary, the tribal leaders went out of their way to receive these visitors as special guests. The Harmony Way is a way of living that undergirds all of Native American history, religion, tradition, ceremonies, stories, philosophy, and relationships. Referred to by different names among various tribal nations, the Harmony Way is planted firmly within the indigenous worldview. According to a set of values that are interconnected, the way of harmony and balance encompasses both being and doing and is applied to all of life. The Harmony Way is a meaningful whole. Harmonious and reconciled relations with others result when a deep respect characterizes those relationships. The wisdom of indigenous traditions and stories emphasizes the importance of restoring the relationship that exists among creator, humans, animals, and the earth, what I call the community of creation. One of the principal values found within the way of harmony is generosity, often expressed through hospitality. Other values include respect for everything and a lifestyle of gratitude, especially to the earth, which produces well and in abundance. A society with Harmony Way values cares for the most marginalized, for the poor and needy, because how we treat those who are the most in need reveals the heart of who we are. Such a society will protect Mother Earth, our source of life, at every turn. The Harmony Way is meant to be both personal, emphasizing our relationships with other beings, and structural, replacing unjust systems where harmony has been broken. To create a society based on the Harmony Way means the old structures and systems will need to be replaced with new structures and systems. The expectation for all creation to live in harmony has been developed by America's indigenous peoples over thousands of years. Harmony is the way of nature and, by design, the way of Creator. Creator expects us to reshape the world we know into the world intended for all creation to live well together. And then the action point is, today, both people and nature have great needs. What can you do today to extend hospitality to the community of creation on a personal or structural level? We heard recently from a woman who has been trying to adapt her lifestyle to become more green, more earth-respecting. And while she, she isn't claiming to act in a specifically indigenous way, She's taken that idea of the Harmony Way and extrapolated a little bit for her household. So she loves houseplants. She's come to love houseplants, actually, on the path to becoming more green. But she has a little girl who knows that the mom loves houseplants. And so the little girl, when she was in trouble, ran over to the plant and ripped a leaf off of it, right? So that was an opportunity for this woman to, to actually teach the daughter that this was a living thing. It was a being and not an object that she could use for her own uses. So she taught the, the child to 
hug the plant, just put her arm gently around it and just sort of bless it. And now the girl, the little girl does that every day, just as a matter of habit. But you know, her mindset about creation, about nature in general has been changed just with that small action, right? And and so this is a great example of how these, these ideas that are so embedded in indigenous culture, we can actually recontextualize them in our own lives and find the ways that, that they're expressed in our particularities rather than think that we have to borrow wholesale from another, another culture. Right. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that story. That's the reason I wrote the book, the children's book I wrote, The Harmony Tree, A Story of Healing and Community. And the idea is to not just be a bridge between host and guest peoples, but but to also animate nature so that children begin to see that that nature are not objects, you know, that the trees have life, they're living, and they are connected, and they have community, and they're part of everything that we do as well. So we're all related, we're all connected. I wonder if you could also read from another place in the book. This is the, the short reflection on place, which is number 23. Very short quote at the front by James Baldwin. It says, People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. Place is everything. We relate to either a real place or an abstract sense of place. The Western world creates a category of place and then universalizes it, making it abstract. When Great Mystery made this world, it was designed to be a place for relationship among creator, human beings, and all of creation. Each part is related to the other, and each is different in its role. All are equally important. Each place contains a rich geographic and sociocultural history. That history, which includes the host people of the land and all creatures who inhabit it, makes a particular environment. Each place consists of particular water features, elevations, flora and fauna, insects and soil. Every place is unique. To universalize a place is to neglect our human purpose. When we depersonalize a place, we began to abuse the land. Ignoring the history of a place or treating it superficially shows extreme hubris. To treat one species in that particular environment as more important than the others displays arrogance, and we do so at our own peril. It is common for indigenous people to understand one specific place. As a result, they understand their relationship to that particular place. The context of that relationality, as it relates to place, exists in indigenous peoples' own stories and revelations. Their relationship to that place is embodied in ceremonies and in food practices. They know its weather patterns and its landscape. Each particular indigenous group understands its own land. And then the action point is, hundreds of generations have lived with the land on which you live. What values can you learn from the tribal group who understands that land? The reason I wanted you to read that is because as I was reading it, it just had a powerful effect on me. And that again, it caused me to remember something from my own experience, which, which really reiterated that, that idea that you're talking about. And specifically, I've always had a, an interest in the, the indigenous cultures around me. So I've done a lot of reading and pretty early on in my life, 
learned the practice of of treating different parts of creation as beings. And so, for example, there's this one place that really owns me, that every summer we would spend the summers, my siblings and family and I, up in the mountains. And one of the summers I came back from school from Chicago, my mom passed away when she was just 40. So it was a summer of mourning for me. But for that reason, it was important for me to be in that place. And so I would go to that place and and really that was my place where in, in, it felt almost as if creation were, were helping me to mourn, but also mourning with me. Ironically, one of the valleys in this place we found out was slated to be logged, just clear cut, which was really a tragedy for us because, you know, we'd grown up in that place. We loved it and had a relationship with it. But we had no control. The land was actually owned by by a lumber company. So it was inevitable, and we kind of watched it happen over the course of the summer. But I write songs, and so I wrote a song for the valley, just basically mourning the loss that was coming. Mm -hmm. And in this really strange way, my mourning for my mother was all mixed up with my mourning for the valley (laughs) and for what was coming. And so it just was a, a very powerful and healing and restorative summer for me that had everything to do with place and the fact that this place owned me just in the deepest sense of that word. So just to say, I, I, that's what I appreciated about this, this particular essay is it invited me to bring my own experience to the reading. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. So much, so much depth there when we think about mother earth and our own mothers and mm-hmm. the creation and yeah. So what is your hope for this book as it, gets released into the wider world, what are the changes that you would like to spark in the people who, who read it? I think, you know, there's always this interplay between what happens to us personally and then what, what we are involved in structurally and socially. You know, sometimes persons change and they begin to change structures. Sometimes structures change and they begin to change persons. I'm hoping that this is a combination and that we begin to take our our responsibility as earth tenders seriously and that it doesn't just affect our lives but it affects our families it affects our children our grandchildren and that it affects the politics that we're involved in that it affects the the way that we begin to judge everything by what is the damage this is going to do to the earth and to the creatures living on the earth not just the human beings and not just one particular, but the whole environment. And so that, that we might make a better earth, more livable and more sustainable for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and all the way down generations. We've been in conversation with Randy Woodley about his new book, Becoming Rooted. To order this book or to find out how to be part of Randy's reading group, Go to the show notes for this episode on the Earthkeepers podcast website at circlewood.online forward slash earthkeepers. If you appreciate this podcast and want to help us expand its global reach, please show your support by subscribing. Just go to whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and hit subscribe or follow for the Earthkeepers podcast. Earthkeepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. 
Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. I am Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Our producer is Dave Olfers. Forrest Reed is our editor and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. And Jessalyn Megerly is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us next time on the Earthkeepers podcast. Podcast.